Welcome back to Island Idols. Here we are for episode number 36. This is the last episode of season three, the season that we've devoted to the topic of the short story. And as always, I am here with Professor Barry Menikoff, the esteemed professor of literature, Professor Emeritus of the University of Hawaii. Aloha, Dad. How are you? Aloha. Good to see you. And and when you say this is the last episode of the third season, I, I sort of shake my head and wonder. You know, I'm a professor emeritus. That means I'm retired. What am I doing working? I know you can say this is not working, but it's, uh, it's an equivalent to it. It was like a semblance of working. Well, come on, Dad. I think that uh, my siblings and I over the years have sort of teased you the, you know, that your job was to, like, read great books and talk about them. Maybe that was my job at one time. I don't know anymore. You know, I'm, I've been so absorbed with writing my own autobiography that I can't get rid of the notion that I might be becoming narcissistic. Who else would write an autobiography except a narcissist? But still, I can't stop it. I keep thinking I have to tell the story even though I can see that I can't find anybody really interested in this story. But nonetheless, we go on. Are you tempted to, to make up stuff about yourself, Dad? No. I do find, though, that I've learned from between Stone Mother and uh, this book, I've learned an enormous amount. I, I thought that was amazing. I figured I knew as much as I needed to know about writing all the years that I've been working as an academic. But writing nonfiction of yourself is very different. And between the first book and the second book, I've learned a certain amount. And I think to myself sometimes, I'm writing like a novelist with one exception. I'm not making anything up. Now, you've kept journals most of your life, haven't you? Not until after I was out of graduate school. I didn't keep journals when I was in graduate school. So all of your first memoir and now this one is all done without the benefit of journals. Absolutely. So if you do a volume three and you've got your journals to access, isn't that going to be a lot easier? It might be a lot easier, but it's a lot more, you know, not a lot more years. And I don't know that I could manage it. I think I've asked you this before, but are you ever tempted to put the memoir aside? Like maybe you're thinking about a certain event in your life and you think to yourself, I think I could turn this into a great short story. I'm going to spend the afternoon and I'm just going to put down... 2,000 words or 3,000 words and turn this into a short story. I have thought about that, about one particular episode when I was living in Los Angeles. I've never done it, but, you know, the thought occasionally comes to mind that would be a nice, maybe an effort to do something, you know, of that nature. Well, I think that'd be a great idea. But that's another subject for the short story, you know. Absolutely. And this, again, we are, uh, we're ending our season talking about the short story and we're ending with the author Flannery O'Connor. And this is an author that you included in both of your, in the two editions of your short story anthology, 
many years ago. Why did you want to make sure that she was included in these anthologies? Well, you know, I think we, we've talked about this before. Anthologies are textbooks, and they're meant to be adopted by, by professors and used in classrooms. And in order to do that, you have to have people in there, writers, that uh, the professors adopting the book would recognize. And at the time that uh, Bob Reese and I were doing these books, Flannery O'Connor had an extraordinary reputation in the United States. That is, she was considered among the top, certainly, I would say more than half a dozen, less than half a dozen short story writers in the country. I mean, now she died very young, as you know. What was she, 39 or 40 when she died? Something like that. She had lupus, so she didn't have a very, you know, she struggled with the illness for most of her life. But in those few years, I mean, she wrote a body of uh, fiction that was at the time recognized by all critics and writers as uh, unparalleled. Now, today, of course, there's another story. I mean, because, of course, as you know, you know, we know her writing was about the South, and she write, wrote, writes about race relations, and she uses language which is considered today, you know, unacceptable. And so, and there's also been a lot of recent... Uh, biographical writing about her, which suggests that she was not exactly, you know, woke with regard to race relations. So this is, you know, given the climate of the cultural climate of the day, I don't know where Flannery O'Connor would fit in. I mean, there's no question that in the quality of writing, she's superb. You know, her control and her mastery over language and her ability to set a scene and her, you know, the tension which she's able to create is unparalleled. I had a friend when I first came out to Hawaii who was a short story writer, and he also died very young. He was an exceptionally gifted writer, and, uh, but he'd never gotten a collection of stories published before he died. And I was talking to him once because I wanted to use, I used one of his stories in the second edition, The Metal Sky by Irvin Krauss, and he said to me, you know, that story came in second in the O. Henry Prize Award. I said, oh, really? That's quite, quite an achievement. He said, you know who came in first? I said, no. He says, Flannery O'Connor, everything rises and must converge. So, I mean, that's a little bit of, you know, gossip, I suppose. But Right. Her letters were given to Emory in 1987, and apparently there was a, a stipulation that Emory not make them available for 20 years. And it's in those letters, I think, that when you talk about the uh, understanding that by today's standards, she might not be considered woke. Certainly in many of the in probably most of the short stories, she's criticizing racism in the South. But that doesn't mean that she was entirely cleared of any prejudices herself. And if her short stories don't make that clear, I think I haven't read her letters, but apparently some of those letters make that clear. Uh, yeah, she was not a very sympathetic figure in terms of uh, viewing the uh, the uh, position of blacks and whites. I mean, she did, she point blank, I mean, she says she's not comfortable with the black people. So <laughs> I think the letters, that's what I'm referring to. They've been coming out and uh, they've been presenting the picture of her. Because the stories themselves are not, I don't think, they're not... Uh, they're not critiques of racism. I don't read them that way. I mean, so maybe we can get into this and see if you see that. Let's talk about that, because 
It's certainly a critique of, of something, so we'll dive into that. But let's begin by simply stating that she was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1925. She spent most of her life in Milledgeville, Georgia, which is uh, Georgia's first uh, state capital. And uh, she studied there at what's now Georgia College. At the time, it was a, a woman's college. But at 21, she went to uh, Iowa because she was uh, admitted into the writer's workshop there and wound up with a master's degree. She is known mainly for her short stories, but she did write a couple of novels, beginning with Wise Blood, which was adapted into a movie. You already mentioned that she was sick most of her life with lupus. She never married, and she spent the vast majority of those 39 years living with her mother. And to the best of my knowledge, the biography to read is Brad Gooch's Flannery, A Life of Flannery O'Connor. And there's an, an also lesser known biography by Jonathan Rogers called The Terrible Speed of Mercy, a spiritual biography of Flannery O'Connor. And her stories are simply captivating. And one of the ones that we looked out for this, we looked at for this episode is The Life You Save May Be Your Own. And this one is not one that deals with the topic of race, but it's about a, uh, a one-armed man named Mr. Shiftlet, who comes to a dilapidated farm owned by a woman in her late 50s, early 60s. And she lives there with her daughter, who is uh, deaf and mute. And he's charming and willing to do odd jobs for food and for the right to sleep on her property. And uh, he doesn't keep his opinions to himself. And he even warns her that you can't trust anybody. And uh, so, Dad, before you maybe share a little bit about this story, let's just give a taste of what her writing is like as she puts some words into Mr. Shiftlet's mouth. He flipped away the dead match and blew a stream of gray into the evening. A sly look came over his face. Lady, he said, nowadays people will do anything anyways. I can tell you my name is Tom T. Shiftlet, and I come from Tarwater, Tennessee. But you never have seen me before. How you know I ain't lying? How you know my name ain't Aaron Sparks, lady, and I come from Singleberry, Georgia? Or how you know it's not George Speeds, and I come from Lucy, Alabama? Or how you know I ain't Thompson Bright from Tula Falls, Mississippi? It's a little bit of a little bit of honesty there, isn't there? Yeah, and it's amazing, too, the uh, the names that he comes up with and the places. I mean, these are no-name places that nobody would even, you know, be aware of, you know, outside maybe somebody living in Milledgeville, Georgia. Who knows that she's not making them up, for all I know. I'm not going to go to the Atlas and check out to see if there are these, name, these places named. I suspect they are. But, I mean... It has a bite to it, you know, and, and 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 I think just the just the names and the places tell you something. I mean, I can come from anywhere, and you don't know where I'm coming from, and just because I'm telling you something, you know, you're gonna take it at face value. Good for you. I mean, or you know, you do do so at your peril. Yeah, the uh, you know we tend to give away the stories on our episodes about these uh, short stories. We tend to give away the plot. And what's fascinating to me as you read through the story is that he is actually signaling that he's not telling the truth. Right. Very good. Yes, absolutely. And it's so obvious and she is so very blind, like she's literally being told. And when I say she's so blind, I think we're all 
tend to be blind like that. But it's a, there's a marvelous transparency. I'm not sure I would say that she was blind. I think in a lot of ways she's shrewd. But, I mean, she has one thing, you know, that she has a purpose behind everything. She wants to get her daughter married. The daughter is really, you know, is incapable of talking. She's uh, a mute. And uh, the mother knows that there's no hope for her. And she finds somebody, and she doesn't really care whether he comes from Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia or what his name is. If she can snag him, she'll go with that. So I wouldn't say she's exactly blind. I would say she's got her own purpose in mind. And there's a certain kind of, uh, shall we say, manipulativeness behind her. Behind her? Yes, yes. Because she's, you're saying, you know, so for the listener, you know, she runs a farm. I don't know what it produces, but she's got a homestead. She says it's got a deep well and it needs to be taken care of. And she's got this daughter who's going to outlive her and is not very marryable because of her special needs. And so this man comes to the homestead, and over the course of the story, he's ingratiating himself to her and to them. But what you're saying is, in another sense, she's trying to ingratiate herself to him to get him to marry her daughter. Yes, yeah, there's no question. But it's a quid pro quo. You know, the way they bargain when he first says how much he needs for this, what was it? He wanted, she, she offers him $15, and he says, no, that won't get me very far for the honeymoon. So he says, I'll give you seventeen fifty. I mean, it's a negotiation. Basically, they're negotiating over the daughter. That's what the mother thinks. He thinks they're negotiating over her, but, they, but it's a way for him to line his pocket, and he can you know, get rid of her when he wants. Dad, this is sort of out of the blue here, but um, I was... I was a number of years ago, I was talking to a man who's now 100 years old, and I was asking him about, you know, inventions in his life that he thought were really transformative. And the, the invention that stood out to him was air conditioning. And uh, this really may seem like a non sequitur. But in my in my observation, air conditioning has managed to separate people and to separate neighbors. You know, you get in your car, you go in your garage, you open. Now, I live in Atlanta, you live in Hawaii. I think we have an appreciation for air conditioning. What's interesting when you read Flannery O'Connor's stories is so many of them are about strangers relating to one another. It's interactions between strangers. And in 2021, I don't know if you've heard this expression, Dad, but have you ever heard the expression stranger danger? No. You know, it's parents, you know, warning their kids, don't talk to strangers. You know, so kids are, they grow up being basically, you were inundating our kids with the reality that people are dangerous. And there's a grain of truth to that. But so much of her storytelling is about people who don't know one another getting to know one another. And frankly, because of uh, so much of her writing is macabre, there is a lot of danger. And this story is another example of that. Well, yeah. And uh, I had made a note when I was reading these because I hadn't read them for quite some time. And uh, the thing that struck me was the extraordinary chasm or gap between the ordinariness of the language and the cliches. By ordinary, I don't mean she, her writing is ordinary, but the conversation is ordinary, and it's riddled with cliches. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. The life you save may be your own. A good man is hard to find. I mean, this, this is part of the conversation of these people who are largely uneducated. And yet, the gap between that and, in some cases, the extraordinary 
terror and horror that she's describing in these stories, the violence, you know, that is there, and the deep unknowingness that, you know, that uh, absorbs some of the people. And uh, it's a tremendous, it's really quite an achievement, in my view. You know, in talking to you already, I realized that you observed something in this short story that, that I missed, and that was how how manipulative the mom is. So let me read another passage, and now a line stands out to me that didn't stand out to me before. This is after she has uh, entreated him to to marry her daughter, and he is he's haggling because he wants to be able to take her away for a trip. And so he's not sure this is going to work because he doesn't want to be tied down entirely to the homestead. She says, listen, Mr. Shiflet, she said, my well never goes dry and my house is always warm in the winter and there's no mortgage on a thing about this place. You can go to the courthouse and see for yourself. And yonder, under that shed, is a fine automobile. She laid the bait carefully. You can have it painted by Saturday. I'll pay for the paint. In the darkness, Mr. Shiflet's smile stretched like a weary snake waking up by a fire. After a second, he recalled himself and said, I'm only saying a man's spirit means more to him than anything else. I would have to take my wife off for the weekend without no regards at all for cost. I got to follow where my spirit says to go. Well, I could go on, but my point is that she laid the bait and his smile stretched like a weary snake. And, you know, if we know anything about Flannery O'Connor, we're aware of her Roman Catholicism. And uh, a snake is not a very subtle allusion to the tempter. But in this story, it's both the woman and the man tempting one another in different ways. Well, it's, she's an amazing writer. I mean, and uh, I was struck by the, the language that she uses, especially in Revelation and in, in, uh, in uh, the Everything That Rises Must Converge, about uh, you know, the way in which these uneducated people talk. You see, she captures, she captures their personalities through their, their speech, and it's not stupid. I mean, these people may be uneducated, but they're not stupid, you see. And that's another thing that, that a, a really a terrific writer reveals. You can reveal people who seem to be lacking in education, but it doesn't mean they lack intelligence, you see. And so it's not intelligence that's missing in these, you know, in the stories. And, you know, maybe we should back up just a little bit. I hate to sound like I'm giving a historical lecture, but, you know, Flannery O'Connor is a Southern writer. And in the context of American literature, Southern writing has had a kind of special place, whether it was worthwhile doing that or not. It's always had a special place. And one of the things about it is it's considered to be, quote, Gothic, unquote. The great figure here, of course, is William Faulkner in one of his short stories, A Rose for Emily, in which a woman, a widow, is sleeping with the corpse of her, you know, lover or husband next to her for so many years. Now, that's a kind of macabre or gothic, you know, incident. And a lot of Southern writers are sort of described as have, are using these kinds of incidents more than you find in Western or Northeastern or Midwestern writers. 
Faulkner is one example, the great Georgia writer Erskine Caldwell, who was more realistic, but was also another one. And what about Walker Percy? I wouldn't put Walker Percy exactly in that category, but certainly I'd put Caldwell there. God's Little Acre and Tobacco Road, which were huge bestsellers. Dad, when I think of, if you were to ask me, you know, what some... If it asked me to answer, like, intuitively, what do you think about when you think of Southern literature? My mind would go to issues of race. It would not go to issues of the macabre or gothic, as you're talking about. Can you explain at all what is it about the South that led to this kind of writing? That would be a question that's beyond beyond my pay grade, so to speak. I really can't answer it, but... And whether it's true or not, I'm not exactly sure that it is. You know, the Gothic actually it actually is a term that was coined in the 18th century for 18th century writing of a particular of a particular kind. The genre was created in the 18th century. The Castle of Utranto, the Mysteries of Udolfo. This was the beginning of what they called literature, which had the supernatural in it, which had elements of the... Uh, of the bizarre mysteries going on and on and on and on. Edgar Allan Poe is sometimes said, and of course Poe is a Southern writer by origin, is said to have Gothic elements in his writing. Without going into a uh, tried an analysis of it, I would say that in not in the two stories, ever, Revelation and Everything That Rises Must Converge, a little bit in the story, you know, that we d- described... Uh, what was it again? The Yeah, The Life You Save May Be Your Own. The Life You Save May Be Your Own. And then also A Good Man is Hard to Find. Right. You have those elements. See, a man running away with the, you know, with prosthetic leg of, of a woman. I mean, that's a kind of element that you don't normally find in what you would say is a kind of steady, respectable, realistic fiction. Yeah, I wonder if when you think about Nathaniel Hawthorne and young is it young Goodman, young Brown, Goodman Brown and of course the Scarlet Letter, I think there's a similar kind of darkness to those stories. The darkness is not the same as Gothic. Gothic really involves elements that are sort of border on the border on the horrific, you know. Okay. It's like in film that you know the uh you know, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a gothic movie. It's a horror movie, but it's really a gothic movie. Well, I'll tell you what, we won't spoil the end of The Life You Save May Be Your Own. I think we've successfully introduced a bit of it, but uh, this was, I read it for the second time for our, our recording today. And the first time I read it, I had to put it down. It was, it was, it was sad. And so that's The Life You Save May Be Your Own. But the stories that you chose for your anthology are Everything That Rises Must Converge and Revelation. And both of these are dealing with the topic, well, I think they're dealing with the topic of race. Your comments at the introduction of our episode makes me wonder if you think they're dealing with something else. Well, dealing with race because, you know, you can't avoid it. And, you know, at the period she's writing about, just the period right after integration was, you know, was proclaimed by, you know, the desegregation I don't know when the stories were written exactly, maybe the late 40s or the 50s, probably. So she's doing, she's in a period when, you know, Jim Crow was really just breaking down. And so she's dealing with, you know, characters who really not adjusted to it and characters who are still living in a 
a racialized world and mentality, and she's describing that. I mean, the amazing things about the stories, is, from my point of view, is how psychologically penetrating they are and how clear-eyed they are about people's character or personality, their deceptions, their self-deceptions, their illusions, and yet that is not what the basic what she's really getting at. I mean, those are things that are just cut the surface. So she's able to do what a psychological realistic novelist does well, describe character and scene with the kind of accuracy that makes you say, oh yes, that's the way it is, or that's the way it was. And at the same time, get in what is essentially, you know, a religious view of the world, which is where your darkness comes in. Right. Well, I think I would agree that the bullseye, if she is shooting an arrow with each of these stories, I would agree that the bullseye isn't racism per se, but racism becomes the setting or the theme by which other problems can be addressed and attacked. So in Everything That Rises Must Converge, the conflict is between Julian and his mother. And Julian is a, uh, a college, an unemployed college-educated young man, clearly from a what was once an upper-middle-class family, at least a generation earlier, but is now clearly lower class. But his mother is trying to hold on to the family name, hold on to some legacy. She wants to hold her head high. And yet, at the end of the day, she is presented as someone who can't accept the fact that they really are low on the social scale. Well, you know, it just reminds me, of course, Tennessee Williams, a streetcar named Desire, also a Southern writer, you know, who can see, you know, people living on a sense of past glory, which is long since passed them by. There's no glory, but you see people don't want to, you know, get rid of that idea. And, uh, of course, you know, you don't have to be Southern and you don't have to have you know, a great-grandfather who was a governor of the state, as in uh, the Everything That Rises Must Converge, to have illusions. I mean, Eugene O'Neill does this in the great uh, play, The Iceman Comet, and says all people have illusions and live with, you know. But that's that's a story for another day. But in any event, in this story, Julian, the son, so he accompanies his mother on a bus to a gym where apparently she's going to take some aerobics class to try to lose some weight. Strangely, she sort of dresses up for this, you know, this trip. She buys a hat she really can't afford at the store. She gets on the bus, and it's clear that uh, she is not supportive of integration. And Julian is embarrassed by her and offended by her. And while they're on the bus, an African-American woman and her son board, and she has the exact same hat that his mother has. And, you know, he overhears the slights she's making about her African-American neighbor. And at one point, and so your Flannery O'Connor lets us into Julian's thinking. And uh, let me read you a little bit about, uh, a little bit from Julian's reflections on his mother's, his mother's racism. Julian followed along, his hands behind him. He saw no reason to let the lesson she had had go without backing it up with an explanation of its meaning. She might as well be made to understand what had happened to her. Don't think that was just an uppity Negro woman, he said. 
That was the whole colored race which will no longer take your condescending pennies. I'll interrupt and say that uh, she offered the boy a, just a, a pittance, a penny, which was just, even in that day, a, a ridiculous token of condescension. And he's explaining that to his mother. I'll go back to the text. That was your black double. She can wear the same hat as you. And to be sure, he added gratuitously, because he thought it was funny, it looked better on her than it did on you. What all this means, he said, is that the old world is gone. The old manners are obsolete, and your graciousness is not worth a damn. He thought bitterly of the house that had been lost for him. You aren't who you think you are, he said. Is a graduate of an undistinguished college who wants to be a writer but is selling typewriters instead, which is a really funny little touch, and who thinks he's better than his mother because he knows more, because he's unprejudiced, because he sees what she doesn't see in terms of the way the world has changed. But of course, underneath it, you know, he's still attached, deeply attached to his mother, and he doesn't recognize it until the, you know, the epiphany and the uh, final act. But the picture of the mother and her, shall we say, her fanciful view of herself and her sense of superiority, of course, is all shattered when she, when the black woman comes on the bus wearing exactly the same hat she's wearing. It says earlier in the, when she says she bought it because she won't see herself coming and going, you know. So the mother is disillusioned, but not disillusioned. I mean, she's actually dramatically and physically upended by the experience. And then the son, of course, in the climax, uh, suddenly realizes that all his superiority and everything, you know, pales before the fact that he may be losing his mother. So it's not the racism itself that is the subject of the story or that the subject of uh, O'Connor's point, but it is the really it is the uh, the sense of superiority and the sense of uh, all-knowing, I mean, the complacency of the mother and, of course, of, you know, the, the figure in Revelation as well that is suddenly undermined in the, in the story. Dad, I, I hear what you're saying, especially in light of, you know, what we said earlier about, you know, we know that Flannery O'Connor was not without prejudice. And yet, when you read this story, I can't help but think that racism is, at least in part, the unwarranted sense of superiority. It's this idea that for no good reason you think yourself better, superior to, more valuable than, over someone. Well, absolutely, but you know, all O'Connor is doing is she's only describing or replicating the experience of the South in her lifetime and what she understands. I mean, that I don't think there's any, there's not really a contradiction between that and her personal inability or unwillingness to sort of make adjustments for personal relations with the blacks to be able to see the way the world is. I mean, Faulkner was in the same position. Faulkner recognized the, the history of, uh, of slavery in the South, but didn't mean he was himself, you know, willing to do anything about it his own experience or the only experience that he, you know, in his life. I don't think there's a contradiction there. When you selected the stories at the time, did you think of them as 
as moving the ball forward on the topic of race in the 70s. Did you think that these stories in any way would be helpful to the modern mind in, in grappling with the horror of racism? Did that have anything to do with why you, why you picked them? Honestly, I can't say that. I did that. I did think that when I was choosing the Richard Wright story, The Man Who Lived Underground, right. the story by the South African, Ezekiel M. Fakhlele, I think it was Mrs. B. In those particular stories, I was much more conscious of racism as a subject and as it's depicted by people who themselves experienced it. I mean, so, but with Flannery O'Connor, I can't say I, I did that. With Flannery O'Connor, honestly, I would say it was her reputation and the fact that she was so highly regarded, which meant that uh, people who were buying the textbook would immediately feel, you know, positive towards it. In other words, they say, oh, where's Flannery O'Connor? We have to, this is a usable book. That doesn't mean to say I, I didn't think the stories were excellent. I wouldn't have chosen them if I didn't. Right. I think that the story revelation about Mrs. Turpin and her husband, Claude, who are in a, a, wait, a doctor's waiting room, I think it does manage to sort of marry this, uh, this critique of, uh, of self-righteousness in the context, in the overall context of this judgmental attitude. In this case, not only to African-Americans, but to the poor and to the uh, uncultured. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, of self-righteousness in Mrs. Turpin's heart that's directed a lot of different directions. But I think it also marries a little bit of the macabre, a little bit of this gothic sense, because the so they're in a waiting room and uh, she's making all these snide, just so inappropriate comments about all the other people. And she is just standing on her soapbox. And there's this, she, the, Flannery O'Connor describes this very ugly child in the waiting room who, out of the blue, throws a book at Mrs. Turpin, hits her in the mouth, and then lunges at her with her hands around Mrs. Turpin's throat. And uh, along that way, she kicks, you know, Mrs. Turpin's husband, so he's in pain. The waiting room is in disorder. It's like this little girl has been possessed. And then Mrs. Turpin you know, is on the floor looking at this girl's, you know, beady eyes. And she asks, you know, what you got to say to me? And the girl whispers into Mrs. Turpin's ear, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. It's a great, great line, a great scene, a great scene. And of course, the girl is where the girl is a, a student at Wellesley College. Right. So, I mean... What kind of irony is you have there? And the, and the white trash woman that's described throughout says she's going to an asylum, isn't she? She's, a, she's going to be a lunatic. So, I mean, what O'Connor does is she just upends all the stereotypes people have of themselves and of others and just puts them, it's like putting them into, a, you know, one of those lottery machines and just turning it around and around and around because Mrs. Turp, she's got everybody, you know, in place. Who's first, who's second, who's on top? And in the end, of course, when she has the vision, it's all wrong. I mean, people like her at the, are falling by the wayside where all those that she's disavowed and she's, you know, and she's trashed and uh, having a, a rising to glory. I think what 
I think what Flannery O'Connor does so well is she points out how much we lack self-awareness. And I think you see it in so many of her stories, a lack of understanding of where we're situated, a lack of understanding of what we sound like, how we are perceived by others. You know, we think we are X, Y, or Z. In reality, we are, you know, A, B, and C. And she found a way to make it so clear. And especially in this story, Mrs. Turpin thinks, you know, there's really, you know, really no one better than her. And Flannery O'Connor, just like you said, turns it upside down. Well, I mean, also, you know, we have to, re you know, she has a deep faith and she has a kind of, I would say, I don't know that much about uh, Roman Catholicism, but I think she has a kind of Jansenist view, you know, which is a kind of uh, almost, you might say, a uh, primordial view of evil and of the spiritual you know, malaise that, you know, in ears and certain in people. And uh, she sees, you know, essentially there's a mystery in all her stories. I mean, you don't really know. I mean, you think you know, you can think you can analyze why people are doing what they're doing, but there's, there's essentially a mystery that, that, that in ears in all of them. And uh, this is, I think, this is her religious belief. And this is, this is the kind of thing she's trying to say. You can't, just because you think you know everything doesn't mean you understand the world. You understand evil and you understand what, you know, what people are for. I mean, she keeps asking, the stories keep asking, what is, you know, especially in the first one, you know, what, what is a man? You know, what is a woman? What are we here for? You know, these come up in, in sort of conversational idiomatic ways, but I mean, they are really reflective of the question she's asking. Well, absolutely. I mean, if Ernest Hemingway, you know, is going to write, are nada who are a nada, you know, he has no room for a transcendent God. Obviously, Flannery O'Connor, as a Roman Catholic, is, is entering the world of writing on completely different terms with an absolute conviction that there is a God. And uh, obviously, as a Protestant, you know, I have no small amount of disagreements with the, the core doctrines of Roman Catholicism, but certainly there's a lot of overlap, you know, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin. And she has a profound understanding of the doctrine of sin. And as a Protestant who does read the Bible, one thing that's very obvious in the story Revelation is she took one of Jesus's parables and turned it into a modern day story. The short story Revelation is nothing other than the Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, it's just a few words, but Jesus, you know, is speaking and uh, he says, you know, two men go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, who's the religious leader, says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, you know, I give tithes of all that I get. So that's Mrs. Turpin, you know, but it's not the adulterers and the extortioners. In this case, it's the, the white trash and it's the poor and it's the blacks. And a tax collector goes up to the temple to pray, but he won't even look up at heaven. And he simply prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says it's the tax collector and not the Pharisee who goes home justified. 
and that really is uh, that's revelation in even fewer words. Yeah, well, there's an old Jewish joke that sort of plays on that theme, but I'm not going to go through it now. But the thing is, you know, the title, Revelation, if James Joyce wrote a story with revelation in the title, it would be an epiphany. It would be a character having a sudden revelation or discovery about something. But when Flannery O'Connor uses it, it's a, it's a uh, religious term, you know. It's a revelation that comes from whether it's God or whether it comes from, you know, faith. And uh, that's very different. And that makes her, that's right. you know, a Catholic writer. And the story ends with, so the revelation are the words of that girl, you know, go to hell, you warthog. You are nothing more than a, you know, a dirty pig. And, uh, and at the end of the story, there's a revelation. And let me read it, and then we'll be we've done with this story. But this is what Mrs. Turpin sees, and you alluded to it already. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture of hieratic, in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks and white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. And I would say their virtues should be in quotation marks. It's their self-righteousness that is burned away as they find themselves last. Well, I mean, it's an amazing story. And, uh, you know, she's an extraordinary writer. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, she gives, you know, she's really a poster child for the old, you know, cliche about, and I, I think they the writing teachers would give you, I've never been in a writing class, but say, write about what you know. I mean, she's, her characters are all drawn from that world, of that southern world that she grew up in and she lived in for her short life. And, you know, even though she, you know, it was amazing for her to be able to go to the University of Iowa. The Writer's Workshop was an extraordinary place, so she was recognized very early for her talent. But the world that she's writing about is, you know, the world that she knows. And in that small world, you know, she creates a, uh, a universe, what Faulkner does with Yachna Patofa, you know. It's, it's, it's a testament to, uh, to style and to discipline. I tell you that, it's, as we've been going down this journey of discussing literature, and as you've been exposed me to so many uh, existentialists and Stoics and the like, I've been struck by how, by the paucity of sort of Christian writing. Like, where are the people with a robust belief in God and in, 
and in faith. What are they writing? And and we think of J.R.R. Tolkien, who went out of his way to say, please don't read into my story. He did not want to be pigeonholed as someone, you know, writing a, a Christian themed book with his trilogy. And C.S. Lewis, I think, less so, a little too obvious with the Chronicles of Narnia and some of his other writing. But Flannery O'Connor was a real critic of Christians trying to write literature. And I don't know if it was in her diary or if it was in her um, book, Mystery and Manners, I think. But listen to what she wrote about the, the faith and literature. She wrote, Ever since there have been such things as novels, the world has been flooded with bad fiction for which the religious impulse has been responsible. The sorry religious novel comes about when the writer supposes that because of his belief, he has somehow dispensed from the obligation to penetrate concrete reality. The real novelist, the one with an instinct for what he is about, knows that he cannot approach the infinite directly, that he must penetrate the natural world as it is. You want to comment on that? Do you want me to comment on that? Well, I think, you know, you use the word realism. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that a writer of faith can do and must do is describe the world as it is and not as he or she wants it to be. That's what, you know, sappy, you know, cheesy, you know, Christian movies, and it doesn't even have to be Christian, but these movies that, or these stories that, you know, paint the world the writer wants, it's very hard to do that well. And especially if you're trying to present it as this is the world God would want. But if you're able to present the world as it actually is, I think you're able to, to bring people to a point where they recognize how hopeless and how self-righteous and how needy of something outside of themselves people really are. And so it seems to me that you're left with kind of a fork in the road. One fork is going to be the world is awful, so let's just, you know, carpe diem, a kind of hopelessness. And I think the other fork in the road is a fork that says the world is awful, but there's hope. And maybe this story isn't designed to tell you what exactly that hope is, but I want to leave you, I want to leave you at least wishing that there's meaning and hope. And I think that's what Flannery O'Connor does in a way that Ernest Hemingway doesn't. He has a different project in mind. I would throw out the name Graham Greene because Graham Greene was a Catholic. Well, he was a Catholic in name and he had been, you know, he became a Catholic. And his novels are often viewed as Catholic novels, although the Vatican didn't like them very much. He's a writer that I think, you know, tries to, you know, tries to accept faith within a world that's pretty much fallen and they're pretty much uh, pretty tough. Now, the ones that I think of that, you know, the Christian writers, they tend to be Catholic. I mean, Graham Greene, Evil and War, J.F. Powers. I can't think of the Protestant writers that are writing that way. Uh, I'm not sure that they're not there, but they don't, they don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't immediately come to mind. But I can think of the Catholic writers who, you know, tend to have their faith and describe the world as they see it. Flannery O'Connor is the one for, is the on the table today, 
and she's, you know, she's known for having made clear her faith, but she's unrelenting in her honesty and her, you know, her unwillingness to give an easy answer to anything. And otherwise, she her stories would probably be dismissed as moralism. In one sense, I mean, I don't know how you would compare her to Tolstoy. I mean, Tolstoy, there was there is a kind of cheesiness, but the cheesiness is such a tiny percentage of the amazing amount of words that you know he gives that I think he sort of gets a pass. But there's no cheesiness in Flannery O'Connor. No, she's a hardcore writer, and which is why I think she's so highly regarded. You know. The other thing is people who are literally inclined, apart from interested in uh, the, shall we say, the ultimate meaning that the writers are protecting, but they're just interested in the literary style and the artistic process. I mean, they will tell you, I think, that even though the vision is bleak, you know, the artistic creation is, is positive and hopeful. So if you're saying Hemingway is presenting a bleak vision, nada, 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 other people will look around and say, you imagine creating that? Can you imagine telling those stories that make people feel them and respond to them so intimately and so viscerally? That's a sign of uh, positivity. But of course, that brings you to the question of art and art itself as a kind of, uh, as a positive alternative to philosophical visions. That's another subject. Well, I think that most people are inherently inconsistent, and we didn't talk about it last time, but in the snows of Kilimanjaro, what happens after the author dies? What happens after the author dies? Do you remember the very end of the snows of Kilimanjaro? No. So, well, he floats off. He doesn't, he floats off and he sees the mountain. Oh, he's, he's hallucinating. Uh, he's dead. He, he's hallucinating or he's dead. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, I think he's, uh, my point is, as you're reading it along, death isn't the end. Oh, you mean the, you mean the mountaintop is the end? Yeah. Okay. It's as if there's even a little bit of hope, which I didn't think was hugely consistent with his philosophy, but I think it was pretty consistent with what most people think about when they die. I think most people, regardless of, okay, this might not be fair, but let me just go ahead and make an assertion. I think most people think they'll be somewhere after they die. Okay. And don't forget, you know, Hemingway wrote The Old Man in the Sea later, which is only about, I think it's only not even 30,000 words. And that book, which was a huge success, he won the Nobel Prize after that. Now, he could have won the Nobel Prize before that. But somehow at that stage, I think the Nobel Prize still didn't want to give the prize out to somebody who didn't, you know, whose work didn't express some hope and hope for, you know, in mankind. When William Faulkner got the prize, you know, he wrote a speech, and his speech says he believes in humanity. He believes that man will survive, man will endure. Now, William Faulkner, whose novels are about as bleak as you can get, I mean, writes that speech to the Nobel Prize Committee. So go figure. I have no answers for these questions. Okay. Dad, when you put together the anthology of short stories, this many years later, does anything surprise you with regard to authors that you included in your anthology that maybe have been forgotten or authors that you put into your anthology that you're a little surprised they're still around and even more beloved than they were at the time of their inclusion? 
That's a good question. I'd actually have to go reading through the table of contents. Actually, you know, there are two editions, one that came out in 69 and one that came out in 75. And the 75 edition was much different from the 69 edition. I used a lot more contemporary authors, and uh, I broadened it from uh, England and America to include continental and African writers. So I was trying to, you know, just to the fact that I didn't want it to be so Anglo-American-centric. And because a short story is a form that, you know, is certainly around the world. And I think, by and large, most of the stories that I've selected in both editions, I mean, they're by writers that are still, that are still valid. I don't think there's any writer in there that... Uh, uh, doesn't isn't worthy. I mean, there's some that are lesser. I think I have I had Dorothy Canfield in there for a story called Sex Education. Probably nobody would even read her today. But by and large, I think the stories hold up, and I think the writers, of course, you know, still hold up. Does that answer your question? Yeah. What would you suggest someone do if they want to continue? familiarize themselves with short stories that are more contemporary. I mean, how does one go about that in the 21st century? And there's so much writing out there. And frankly, I Googled a little bit, like some top 10 lists, and maybe I'm going to sound like a Puritan dad, but like the top 10 lists of collections of short stories read like a list of uh, erotica. This is a whole subject that, uh, you know, would require a couple of podcasts. But my, as you can tell, as, as, and as I think the listeners probably understand, my instincts are pretty conservative. You know, I'm not, you know, I have limitations. I've always had a limitation for the supernatural. It's not been the first, and it's not been an area of fiction that I've been particularly interested in. So that means science fiction is something that I've not really spent a lot of time or much time, you know, exploring. So my essentially the writers that I'm interested in or the writers that I would follow would be writers that, that continue that classic, you know, tradition of uh, psychological, character-driven, character-driven stories and uh, with a sense of realism. I think some people that I would throw out for listeners that have not been covered, one is Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver was a writer who... Uh, what we talk about when we talk about love, that's the title of one of his famous collections. And his stories are marvelous. And he had a great influence on the short story. I think the Southern writer, Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter was her novel, but she wrote The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Her stories are also wonderful. And of course, Shirley Jackson, whose most one short story she wrote, The Lottery, you know, caused more fan mail in the to the New York than any other story, many of them dropping their subscriptions because they couldn't stand the story. And Alice Munro, the Canadian writer who won the Nobel Prize, was, a, was strictly a short story writer. So there's plenty, plenty to read. People should follow their interests. Well, I'd love to, Dad, I don't know, again, this is the end of our third season, and, um, you know, I'm going to, put you on the spot here at least to share you know my desire is that I would love our, another season and I would love it to be devoted to Robert Louis Stevenson because dad the great irony of now recording 36 episodes with you 
is uh, I think only two of those have been devoted to Robert Louis Stevenson, the writer that you gave most of your career to. And I think between your own monograph about narrating Scotland, his novels, his short stories, I think there are easily 12 conversations that we can have about the influence of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson on the world today. So if I could wave my wand, Dad, that's what we would do next. And if we could have another season, a season of contemporary short story writers, I think would be fascinating to dip our toes into what's being read today. Well, Aaron, you've got an amazing, you're amazingly ambitious and you've got a great, uh, a great sense of, you know, opportunity and, you know, hope and everything. I mean, I know, are you like Prospero waving your magic wand? (laughs) (laughs) Our revels here have ended. Well, you know, there's a lot of content out there on the internet, and I think uh, the content of Island Idols is pretty good. So uh, let's, you know, why not? Why not keep producing? How do you get more listeners? I mean, how do you monetize this? That's what I want to (laughs) know. I guess that's not the issue. You know, donations are always welcome. I just don't know how we would receive them, Dad. But it has been a lot of fun. We are certainly going to take a little bit of a break now because I got a lot of reading to do before we can uh, record again. But uh, can you believe it? 36 episodes. No, actually, I can't. Actually, I can't. When I say it, I think to myself, when I tell your aunt, my sister, she shakes her head. I can't see her shaking her head, but I know she's shaking. And she says, Why, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing this for? Who is listening? <laughs> and uh, I say, well, Miriam, it's wonderful to be in the presence of my son and to see him because we see each other on the computer and to listen to him and to admire his work. Well, and and it shouldn't escape our notice that you know, much of the, all of this season has been done during COVID when I just think that's, COVID has not been great, but I think this has been an appropriate time to make sure that, you know, people are connecting with one another when there has been so uh, little connecting going on. And uh, you've been a trooper. I think one of my highlights is when I ask you a deep metaphysical question and you simply ignore it. So I'm going to be honing my skills on getting you to answer some of the metaphysical questions, but uh, there's always another day. So, Dad, I'm going to give you the last word. What would you say as we end season number three? Well, I would say I hope everybody out there is staying safe and keeping their spirits up. And although none of us have been through anything like this before, I hope that we will see the end of it in the not-too-distant future. And Aaron, it's very good to talk with you and to see you. Always, Dad. All right. I love you, Dad. Thanks for doing this, and uh, I'll see you soon. Ciao.